and it was reflected in the coping mechanisms, as in men feel that they want to be agents in their lives, and therefore they will take really unhealthy levels of uh, self-blame and uh, responsibility. Well, I didn't act in a certain way. I didn't uh, protect myself and so on and so forth. Therefore, I'm the one to be blamed. And almost a way to take the power from the perpetrator or the abuser and the rapist to draw it back to themselves. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're speaking with Dr Ken Vidanarala-Lagi. Ken is a lecturer in psychology at the University of Westminster. He's a qualitative researcher interested in understanding how victim survivors make sense of their victimisation, coping strategies and experiences accessing support and involving the criminal justice system. During his PhD, he explored men's experiences of rape and sexual abuse in adolescence and adulthood. Working with men made him increasingly interested in committing and understanding and supporting marginalised, seldom heard groups using qualitative methods to provide a platform where individuals can tell their stories and break their silence. He believes in the value of personal experiences and the transfer of knowledge to help others and to hopefully create a better society for survivors and their close networks. And I heard Ken speak recently at the Psychology of Men conference, and I think what really came across was uh, your passion and commitment to um doing justice by your participants i think ken which um really really um came through in your presentation so really delighted to have you on the podcast today welcome thank you thank you so much hi ken very good to meet you and thanks very much for being with us today can you perhaps uh, begin by describing your career pathway and how did you come to be researching male experiences of sexual violence? Um, I think in many ways it's not particularly uh, extraordinary career path also because it's quite brief and I'm really at the, at the beginning of it. Uh, quite straightforward studying, studying psychology with a focus on criminology and um, I originally come from my parents are Sri Lanka but I lived all my life in Italy so this idea of gender stereotypes has always been uh, interesting or at least interesting in the back of my mind and I was fortunate enough to encounter the right uh, type of mentors who directed me towards uh, research focusing primarily on uh, female-focused rape myths, so all of the stereotypes that we as a society tend to hold around uh, what victims should look like or how a type of uh, sexually violent incident would occur. I think um, I got hooked on by this type of research and this type of uh, inquiry trying to understand how people blame others uh, by became increasingly obvious that there was a really big gap uh, around men uh, we always thought about the male perpetrator would justify men being sexually aggressive and there was almost a question of, i am not sexually aggressive or i'm not an aggressive person and the majority of the men in my life are normal men um, and so almost by chance, I typed in male victims and it almost like a world opened up. 
the world of men. Of uh, I think in the conference, someone said around, you know, 50% of the population is made up of men. So it's quite likely that victims would be there. And that was the case. And um, there was this particular paper uh, by uh, Coxell and King uh, from 2010, in which they described something around uh, how we always focus on the fight and flight response uh, from a very evolutionary or even biological perspective and very rarely focus on how we freeze and we're reporting the series of experiences from men around how they felt immobilized when they uh, were subjected to sexually violent incidents and that was really almost shocked me because I never got across I never thought about the possibility of a man and I was relatively young at the time I was in my really late um, maybe 19 20 and it really really challenged me and that was the starting point at which I became critically interested I again find found a right mentor who wanted me to uh, pursue a PhD and um, yeah go here Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very interesting. You're reminding me that many years ago, a colleague of mine, uh, who's a psychoanalyst, um, was working on issues of male eating disorders. Uh -huh. And just as you're describing, there was very little written mm -hmm. about male eating disorders. In fact, it was really thought that it didn't exist. So there are some interesting parallels there and I suppose what you're suggesting really and this is you know, to do my next question as well is there a need for sexual violence to be viewed through a, a gendered prism? It's a very difficult question and uh, because there is a an element to it where it can be even controversial to say that exp uh, experiences are gendered. On one hand I think that the narrative is built around the fact that speaking about sexual violence as gendered is used to almost view that it only happens to women because men have certain gendered characteristics that lead them to act in a certain way. And to, to some extent, we can, we can believe that and we can accept it because a lot of women have, the majority of victims of sexual violence are women and we can't, uh, we can't deny that the element. However, it denies the, the nuances of the experiences and overly focusing on gender can be complicated if we think about it only in terms of uh, prevalence and incidence of the event. So at the same time, at the other side of the coin, uh, especially in my research, but I think this comes across also for female victims, victims' experiences will be gendered because uh, gender defines quite a lot of the the ways that we see ourselves, not only in the way that we identify, but also how we position ourselves in terms of our society. Uh, as a man, uh, I do feel the expectations around feeling accountable uh, or uh, strong, uh, try to control my emotions, even though I consider myself someone who is in touch with these emotions. And so, and this really comes across in victims' experiences, and that's why gender, it, it, it's, it's a difficult balance that needs to be played around, not using gender as a way to either minimize one group or the other, but use it to acknowledge the individual experience perhaps. Thank you, yes. Now, I'm not quite sure whether I heard this earlier on, but uh, when do you think accounts of sexual violence against men and boys started appearing in the research literature? I think that this is a very interesting question because if you don't go out of your way to look for it, at least 
up until two to three years ago, you wouldn't find anything. Uh, the the field the field of interpersonal violence was maybe this word is loaded, so I just use it in the actual meaning of it. It was saturated with research focusing on women's experiences. Not to say that it's wrong, and there is very good reasons for it, but it was very very hard to come by research that focused on men's experiences. It only come to, came across if you typed in or looked specifically at key terms that looked at male victims and male as survivors. Things I think are changing. I, I think I, see, I'm, I am starting to see more even work that focuses on female victims, acknowledging that there are also male victims to be considered by its always, and it's still very much uh, like a side note. Very interestingly, in the research that focuses on men, I think everyone, at least myself, I, have, I must have wrote at least a paragraph acknowledging the fact that the majority of victims are women and to try and almost justify that this research is not designed to minimize or overlook or say, oh, we solved the female problem because we obviously have not. Um, but I don't see the thing for the female side of the research. Mm. It's interesting you should feel you need to do that. Yeah, I think maybe it's personal, but I do feel the need to to do it because I don't want to come across, or I, I don't want this type of research to come across as oppositional uh, or hesitant. It, it should it shouldn't be focusing on one group doesn't mean that you don't care about it. you know putting it very simplistically. It doesn't mean that you don't care about the other one, but the perception sometimes is or people do have this perception unless you engage in a detailed and in-depth conversation which is unfortunate but again we are really at the beginning I, I do feel that despite the fact that there are decades of research in it I think in the UK if we want to focus specifically on this country or these countries uh, the voices of men are coming forward uh, a little more prominently I hope. Good. Uh, I really like the way that you juxtapose um, saturated with loaded, um, you know, illustrating really how important it is to be careful about the terms that we use. So thinking about your research, how did you recruit uh, participants? Was this a challenging task? Very. <laughs> it, was, it was very hard. Uh, and it's it's probably not surprising that it was hard to recruit men to take part on research. And you have to be honest, you have to be transparent. You you have to tell them that when you advertise the research, we are going to be talking about your experience of sexual violence. It's going to be potentially triggering. It's it's, it's part of the process. There needs to be the element of transparency. And uh, I think also the fact that I started collecting data right in the middle of the national restrictions for COVID did not help because, um, and this is not necessarily because it was hard to physically reach participants, um, but I made sure that the protocols, um, services were involved in the protocols because I wanted to make sure that it was a safety network for those who took part that they could fall back onto. Um, if, for example, they found it to be particularly challenging, they had a service in place, a support system, a professional support system in place to support them. And I really do feel, and something that's probably 
uh, underexplored and probably a very interesting area and useful area of research would be to see the strain that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on services that uh, work with victims of interpersonal violence. Because my experience, and I had this really, um, maybe privilege is not the right word, but a position where I could see how services struggled to uh, engage with uh, a relatively small PhD student. So I can imagine that with bigger uh, work that could have been uh, even more challenging. And so there were several challenges in place. The, the circumstances were probably not the best and the topic is in itself very loaded and very difficult to talk about. I think it was reflected in the type of men that came forward to, to take part in our research. It's almost like the topic and the focus of the research almost create a, uh, a recruitment bias, let's put it this way, or were helped a specific group of male survivors to come forward. And the men who came forward were predominantly white. Uh, they were uh, and had historic experiences of sexual violence. So that, uh, by that, I mean that it happened between 25 to 30 years. Uh, the interview took place 25 to 30 years after the event, meaning that potentially, and this is maybe my assumption, but they had an opportunity to go through uh, support services for a longer period of time and therefore feel more equipped to, to take part in the, in the research. That's very interesting, Ken. I was wondering, were all your participants victims of male perpetrators? Yes. Or, yes, because having um, worked with men who've been sexually abused by women, um, mm -hmm. I wonder if that's another barrier um, mm -hmm. to speaking up, you know, anything that that emphasises um, vulnerability um, and emasculation might might make it harder to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the study was specifically focusing on male-on-male okay. uh, participants, uh, but some participants came forward who had, uh, so I couldn't include them because the, the study was a, had a specific focus. A couple of men did came forward who had experiences from a female perpetrator, uh, which was very interesting. I, I think I did the interviews anyway because and maybe this is something that we can come on uh, a little bit later about how if a man comes forward and he might even not fit the recruitment criteria, uh, there is almost an element of responsibility, knowing how hard it has been for them to come forward to, to listen to their story anyway. Something about recognising the validity of their position. I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So how many men did you interview in, in your sample? Uh, I think nine, nine male survivors um, were included in the final piece of the research. Uh, and the interviews were, <laughs> some were very long. Uh, there was a, a particular one, a, a couple of them that I remember very, very clearly that spent the entire afternoon going from one o'clock till four or five in the afternoon between the introduction part, the interview when a press record and the, the debrief. So it's almost as if, as if the, the limited number of participants really helped me to spend time with them to really get, and this is something that, as you mentioned, maybe in the introduction, I really value and really work on, making sure that it's not just a mine of information, a participant should be treated as a database 
and I have to get as much information as possible and then move to the next piece and so on and so forth. Really focus on the human experience because the individual experience can really help to understand others and you know all things around generalizability and so on and so forth. Thank you. You chose to use interpretive phenomenological analysis, IPA, as your research methodology. Was there something particular about that approach? Is not so much perhaps that you chose a qualitative approach, but why you chose that approach um, for your for your data analysis? Um, it links back to this idea of really wanting to focus on the individual experience, uh, something that. Um, when, when thinking about back on, on the literature and how I got into this field, what was really, really missing was men's voices. Were, there, there was a, a real gap in which a lot of authors were speaking about drawing implications from gendered research and masculinity and uh, you know research around men's suicide and uh, men's experience of interpersonal violence but what was really missing is this big gap of men actually talking about their experiences and uh, using ipa put me in help me develop a framework an approach a way to think about experiences that really thinks of uh, we have major life events in our that can be anything, uh, such as uh, getting a promotion, having a child, or in this specific case, has these experiences of violence and abuse. And these experiences will shape uh, our lives uh, continuously for a prolonged period of time. And so, taking that those lenses, thinking these men have had really significant, really major experiences, how do they see this major experience shape their life? Uh, really, really helped me try to put myself in a position where I could be insightful and feel that I could see through their eyes as much as possible, obviously. And I think it really does allow to, uh, and I'm not gonna bore you <laughs> with, with, with the specifics, but what's really interesting as a methodology is that it goes through a lot of philosophical assumptions that are quite useful around how uh, as beings we create experiences, how the importance of uh, deconstructing meaning and things around ideography, so the individual experience that really um, attracted me as a, as a way to approach uh, human experiences. That makes a lot of sense. And, and what were the gendered narratives or, I suppose more colloquially, rape myths um, specific to men that, em that emerged during the course of your research? Uh, it was, unsurprisingly, the two main ones were around the fact that real men cannot be raped. And that is a man is too strong, is too both physically and mentally, a man is resilient. Therefore, a real man who is strong, resilient, it's impossible that they were that they could be raped, and so many stereotypes were attached to it, such as that men are promiscuous and men go out of their way to engage in sexual relationships, and men are proactive, are sexually proactive. Therefore, the idea of them being uh, victimized, subjected, overpowered, that defies uh, from from a societal perspective what we expect to happen to men. On the so this relates to masculinity. The sexuality myths instead really speak about how, as a society, we tend to have uh, hostility towards uh, same-sex relationships, and 
as the focus of my work, focused on male on male experiences, a lot of the stereotypes were around, oh, well, it happens to gay men. Oh, well, and a lot of the participants were not uh, gay in my sample. And in a lot of research, a lot of heterosexual and straight men have experience of sexual violence by the hands of other men. So it's, so that's a fact. And um, what was very interesting is that it was almost used to limit the event to a specific group. Oh, it's, you know, it's something abnormal that happens to a very type specific of men who are more prone to suffer those risks. I think what was really interesting in the in my research in itself was that those myths were presented by men, not only from how others saw them, but also how they saw themselves. Because a lot of the stereotypes that they, or a lot of the ways that they used to describe themselves were related to masculinity. Or, well, I need to be a real man because a real man would have been raped or would have this experience of sexual violence. So I need to be strong. So there was a really interesting overlap between the how society describes uh, sexually violent incidents and how men see themselves which really shows how it is important from an academic or policy perspective to think about uh, society and attitudes, because a lot of those attitudes will fall back to those who are most affected by them, because they will use them to, um, and there is another strand of my research that focused on uh, service providers and how service providers who specialized on working with male survivors often spent a substantial amount of their time working with them to deconstruct those uh, assumptions that externally reinforced, if that makes sense, externally and culturally reinforced. Yeah, I was wondering as you were talking, actually, whether uh, to what degree the men presenting you with their account were able to dif- were able to identify that those were myths or how much there was a sense of having internalised those myths and, and <laughs> holding on to them. Um, I think it varied, and but I think to to some extent, what was really interesting, and I'm sure you must have come across working with men with this, is that there is an aware there. It's almost as if there is an awareness. Oh, you know, as a man, I can cry, I can feel vulnerable, but I'm not going to <laughs> anyway. So there there is this awareness of all the stereotypes and myths and issues and expectations that are social, and there is an awareness that these expectations are social, but nonetheless. Uh, there is a need to hold on to those, uh, those let's call them values or norms or expectations. So there's a very interesting duality between a lot of uh, self-awareness and awareness of, of what's, well, not necessarily what's right or what's wrong, but what's real and what isn't and what is culturally reinforced and what isn't. But at the same time, and really, I think this speaks to how how strong those scripts and norms are in our psyche, uh, how hard it is to detach from those. Yeah, thank you. And how, how did people cope with what happened to them? I think what was really interesting in that regard is that the stories were very different. The experiences were very, very unique. Um, in their teens, in their adulthood, in, in, some involved weapons, some didn't, some there were substances involved, so on and so forth, position of power uh, or a difference in power uh, between the perpetrator and the survivor. And so it was very interesting to see how the, the coping mechanisms overlapped 
and in, in in some way i think it's useful to think about what we lose when we have experiences or what we feel we are losing when we have experiences of interpersonal violence and what really comes across from men's voices is the idea of agency uh, safety and control and it was reflected in the coping mechanisms as in men feel that they want to be agents in their lives and therefore they will take really unhealthy levels of uh, self-blame and uh, responsibility well I didn't act in a certain way I didn't uh, protect myself and so on and so forth therefore I'm the one to be blamed and almost a way to take the power from the perpetrator or the abuser and the rapist to draw it back to themselves and this was what was very interesting that it comes across both from therapists working with male survivors and male survivors themselves this real need to uh, judge very harshly themselves uh, in terms of safety uh, i think that's probably the most um, evident one um, because they feel extremely vulnerable afterwards uh, and again the difference is somewhere in their teens so there is some element of developmental trauma in place and the element of vulnerability how it plays out in the lifespan others were in their adulthood and so there is a social element to it you know adulthood is almost perceived with safety for men and so that vulnerability and those experiences were very very tough and some went out of their ways i think there are some extracts in uh, one of my papers around how men really go out of their way to engage in fights because it makes them feel it's it's almost paradoxical, isn't it? That going out of the out of the way to engage with aggressive acts to feel safe, because acting tough in the outside world will mean that the outside world will see you as tough. Therefore, I am tough. Therefore, I feel safe. This really complex, um, but almost uh, very masculine needs and around so agency, safety, and feeling like they're in control essentially. And what's interesting is seeing how survivors themselves feel about these experiences and how they recognize all of these issues, but at the same time, keep linking back to those stereotypes, keep blaming themselves or keep very subtly. Um, it was a really interesting account from one participant saying, oh, I know, I knew that I blamed myself uh, excessively, that I wasn't responsible. And then just 10 minutes later, so I said, oh, well, I was young, I was naive, uh, I probably should have didn't drink that much. So uh, engaging in this almost double speak in which they at first say, yes, I'm aware I shouldn't blame myself, only the perpetrator should be blamed, but then going on to blame themselves anyway. So I think it's very interesting and it really speaks about men in particular. Yeah, I think there's something interesting, isn't there, about how we might know one thing but feel something different and the importance, therefore, therapeutically of not just engaging the cognitive part of the brain, because actually you can change the thoughts, but actually if you still feel in some kind of visceral way that you were responsible for what for what happened to you. But it's also interesting, I think, to hear about men engaging with, you know, kind of like a fight strategy, overcompensation to defend against vulnerability. Because I think given David's and I background in the criminal justice system, what we see is a lot of men who've spent big parts of their life, often very, from very, very early on, being victimised, um, sometimes in, in mainly a physical way, but actually heard many, many accounts of, of sexual abuse. Um, and I wondered if there are other elements of coping that might lead to increased risk of, 
of contact with the criminal justice system beyond the, the fighting? Um, there, there is an element, and I think this links probably best with the, the strand of research that I'm doing with, with um, service providers, because I think they, they, that kind of work has a more of a um, holistic perspective of the lifespan of the survivor to some extent, because when working specifically with survivors, I was much more interested in their stories and the way that they express those stories. So in that regard, in terms of how does coping potentially increase uh, contact with the criminal justice system? I think it's, there is a very strong case for arguing that. Uh, and it's not only just the fighting, and, but there is an element to it that is very interesting as how, how antisocial behavior at times, and I'm sure in your work as, as forensic psychologists or in the field of forensic psychology, you must have come across this. It almost overshadows the trauma that it's behind, uh, in particular men's experiences. Um, and there was this account from a service provider of uh, a man uh, receiving a really a, a service provider telling about one of his clients who uh, was walking down the street and received a very uh, homophobic and racist um, assault by a group of men. And it just reminded him of the vulnerability he felt in his uh, when, he, when he was young as a victim, and then he um, attacked him. And so there's obviously layers to antisocial behavior that unfortunately, given how the criminal justice system and especially on, on the side of the police and prosecution is formed, and it's not to blame the police or the prosecution per se, it's just how our system works. Uh, all of this is missed, especially on the perpetrator side and this element of how a lot of, not all perpetrators, but a lot of perpetrators have experienced trauma uh, will be missed. Another part, I think, is substances. Uh, there were some participants who engaged quite a lot in using uh, quite, quite, um, extreme substances as well, so from, from crack cocaine to cocaine, heroin, and so on and so forth. Um, it might be obvious why, as a way of coping and you know, as a way of... Um, there was this idea of they felt like monsters and using drugs helped help them not feel that way. And again, it's unsurprising how then it increases contact with the criminal justice system because uh, they started dealing, for example. And so there are several opportunities uh, and maybe opportunities to bond board for men to, and, and, and probably the fact of being men at the same time probably is an increased uh, risk factor if you want to speak to increasing contact with the criminal justice system and engaging with those antisocial behaviors. So there is definitely scope for um, questioning how even the criminal justice system has an element for identifying trauma on, on first contact, even if it's coming from the perpetrator side. Yeah, so I think it's interesting because I think in the sort of field of criminal justice, we're much better at looking for these histories of trauma amongst women who've offended but it's mm -hmm. it's it's much even I think even amongst I don't know if you'd say the same David but even amongst practitioners um treating men in the criminal justice system um it, people still seem to be guarded about understanding that as being a significant factor so it, it it can get spoken of as if it's part of the experience for some men rather than a recognition that that traumatic experiences are there in, in the histories of most people who are in, in prison, certainly. Is that your experience, David? 
Yes, I think that's a very good uh, point indeed. Uh, you certainly brought out in, in my experience of the work. Ken, how did how did their experiences of sexual violence affect their identities as men? Do you think? Um, I want to be very careful not claiming that there is an identity crisis because, again, words can be loaded and mm. they're, 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 and we, sh we should try and avoid as much as possible labelling in a certain way. There was, however, a very clear before and after, before the abuse and after abuse, even for those participants who had experiences quite early on in the uh, 12, 13, 14 and so on and so forth. Um, I think the best way that I can describe it in that regard is there's there's almost two sides the, the side that wants to feel like men and therefore I don't want to feel vulnerable I want to feel strong I want to feel um, accountable for my life I want to feel resilient but at the same time there is the maybe it's unfair the survivor's side which does feel vulnerable and does need the support and these two feelings and needs one uh, maybe linking back to what you were saying earlier around the cognitive and the emotional side the cognitive the thoughts are telling me one thing but my emotions are directly towards the need of uh, feeling like i need to be supported and there is definitely an element of uh, maybe crisis yes uh, in terms of a schism perhaps between these two sides that are pulling in two different directions and i think that's probably one of the maybe an hypothesis that i am making here but this is probably one of the reasons why uh, there is quite a significant delay uh, for men reporting disclosing recognizing actually in the first place and um, accessing support because of these conflictive feelings of i want What's very really interesting, especially working with men, is that at the beginning, there is an assumption of that admitting vulnerability would uh, worsen their feelings or an assumption that going uh, out of the way to ask for support will make things worse. And therefore, this sense and this emotion that accessing support will uh, mean that they have given up, perhaps, or those very <laughs> masculine thoughts. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably a really important barrier. That's why, linking back to the question you, um, you asked me earlier, David, around maybe viewing sexual violence as gendered, it links to that. It, the gendered experiences come across uh, in these ways, in these subtle ways around why not ask us, um, asking for support or why not disclosing and how to deal with these contrasting emotions. It's very gendered in, in, in individual experience in my experience. I was thinking that they may well have been right in fearing that uh, if they disclosed to the police or whatever, that, that uh, their, their following experience may well have been much, much worse. So uh, arising from that, I was wondering how many of your participants did actually report to the police? Surprisingly, uh, I was surprised to find out that the I appreciate it's a relatively small sample, but I was still surprised to see that six out of nine of the participants who took part reported to the police. Um, and again, it's probably uh, the sample and the people who, the men who felt like they could come forward that uh, almost, almost created this 
skewness towards uh, reporting to the police. And to, to what you were saying earlier, that maybe it's a fair assumption that men have that their uh, accessing support will worsen their emotions. It was most definitely the case in um, uh, in, the, in, in the group of men that I worked with for my research uh, around the fact that they reported to the police. It was really, really sad, actually, just to remove the academic language. It was really, really sad to see how they started or saw in reporting an opportunity to seek that institutional validation that is so important, uh, finding that uh, a legal or an institution recognizes that what happened to you was a crime is very powerful because especially for groups of men who felt like they've been silenced, they felt like they're invisible, they feel like they're, they're voiceless to have the criminal justice system, such an umbrella organization that represents the police, the prosecution, the court, and our country in many ways. Uh, they feel like it could be very powerful. However, again, the system is far more complex than that. And there are several layers to be considered. Police officers need to find evidence. And in finding the evidence, they have to pose questions in Maybe, maybe sometimes unnecessarily uh, harsh ways because they, they are there to collect information. And a lot of the time, uh, there was this particular survivor who said he felt like he was bludgeoned by, by police officers, by their words and by their questioning. And what was key is that a lot, not almost bar one, all of the survivors uh, withdraw their allegations because they felt like they couldn't see themselves going on for years uh, because that's uh, unfortunately the state of the criminal justice system in the UK, uh, reporting to the police, it's just the beginning of a very, very long journey. And men felt like they needed to withdraw because the psychological burden of being interrogated, feeling like you're uh, guilty until proven innocent was very, very powerful and very sad. Hmm. Well, given your description, uh, there, Ken. Do you think you did learn anything useful about how the police could handle such things better? Um, again, I feel, I think there is, there, there is a very, uh, let's call it tendency to pile in on the, the criminal justice system to, to an extent, uh, which is a, a very complex system and uh, they're a very underfunded system as well. So uh, I want to be careful making recommendations to the police. Uh, but at the same time, what was clear is that what men were looking for, so really specifically focusing on male survivors, they were, and this might not be very academic or very scientific perhaps, but they, they were just really looking for a sympathetic ear or a, a police officer who felt like they cared about their experiences. I think this really speaks about how services can play a part. And, and, and when I speak about services, I speak about services in general, uh, both in terms of therapeutic support and the criminal justice system, is that uh, showing um, uh, sympathy and empathy to uh, men's experiences, and it doesn't have to be sexual violence, it can be anything in terms of that, that Upsets, up, upsets them, uh, which can be both interpersonal or in the domestic as well, so on and so forth. Well, that, that can be powerful in itself because it's, it's, it's giving recognition. And a lot of the time, what men were looking for was recognition and action. So 
um, maybe this is, doesn't specifically answer your question, David, but it's it's around that a more humane approach to men could certainly go a long way to make them feel like they can continue being part of the criminal justice process. And hopefully, and police officers by themselves, for example, cannot solve the issues of prosecution threshold, for example. That's a, a very difficult, uh, difficult area and difficult balance that they have to play with both the victim's needs, the CPS needs, and so on and so forth. However, police officers represent uh, key, a gateway for a further support in directing men to asking or accessing uh, therapeutic support, but also that institutional recognition that men seem to be looking for when they engage with the criminal justice system. So a more sympathetic and humane response could go a long way to keep them engaged, perhaps. Thank you. This is really interesting, isn't it? Because we know that kind of like a, a key faction where they're experiencing a traumatic incident becomes a trauma as such is is the response that people get mm -hmm. from from. And so actually, I guess if you met with somebody who's sympathetic and appears to believe what you're saying would therapeutically be of some value, even if the court doesn't find the perpetrator Absolutely. guilty at the end of the day. And I think that links again to the type, sorry, no, to, to the man itself, because a lot of the time they would go on, to, very rarely they go on to report immediately after the event. And actually a lot of the time men went to report maybe five, 10, 15, 20 years. So there is an element that they feel like they overcome part of the initial traumatic experience of the non-recognition from the family and the support. So going back to the police, there is an element of re-victimization if the response is not humane and non-sympathetic and is hostile and doesn't recognize their experiences. So actually, it can have very detrimental mental health consequences for men if the response is not appropriate. And this is something that's very important also from the services point of view because specialized services on men are very limited in this country. And a lot of the men I spoke to their experiences, they accessed female orientated services and they felt like the response wasn't as humane. And I'm quoting survivors here by saying that they felt that if they were women, they would be treated differently. And that's very uh, powerful uh, in a negative sense. So again, Humane responses and the ability, and this is where training comes forward, to direct towards the right uh, resources. And I can imagine in your field, you specialism is so important, especially when working with men, because the uh, men and women are not the same, and therapeutic approaches need to be different when uh, dealing with, especially with traumatic experiences. Thank you. And can you finish your PhD? Where, where do you plan to take your research interest in the future? Um, I think I'm, I still want to uh, work with men. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not done with them, <laughs> let's put it this way. Um, and what I'm really interested in, uh, and I'm work actively working towards, is focusing on uh, in, ethnic minorities. Um, as, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I'm originally from, from Sri Lanka. My parents are from Sri Lanka, so I'm very, very interested in seeing how those uh, cultural influences may affect uh, recognition and disclosure, uh, because the evidence from, again, 
It's very interesting. A lot of the work we do with men in the sexual violence field starts from women's experiences and the evidence from women from uh, ethnic minorities suggests that uh, a our understanding is very limited because families and cultural systems uh, do not allow disclosure or public disclosure. Therefore, there is uh, uh, certainly a substantial group of men from ethnic minorities that are uh, quite literally invisible. And therefore, using the approach of IPA and focusing on individual experiences, I think there is a, a really opportunity to, um, uh, maybe this sounds uh, a bit romantic, but shine a light into their, their experiences. So I hope uh, to go there. Thank you. And how, how did completing this research help you grow and develop as a person? Um, it, it's, it's difficult to say because I, I, maybe I, you'll have to ask my wife potentially. Uh, but um, I do feel that I am more attuned with uh, my masculinity, perhaps. And because I, again, this is something that happens in, in IPA. There is this back and forth, or there is an expectation that you should do a back and forth between yourself and the participant, the transcript that you're analyzing. And so a lot, as you can imagine, a lot of the interviews were around me trying to identify ways in which masculinity came forward in explaining men's experiences. And so I had to by asking those questions to the transcript and to the survivors, or actually asking those questions to myself as well. And this is something that I think it's so powerful in this type of research, because it's, it's, a, very human, it's a very human experience in which you learn from others. And in asking questions in a certain way, it was very interesting in some interviews, I asked a question in a certain way and men telling me, well, no one has ever asked me that question. But for example, uh, asking them, do you think if you were a woman, people would have treated you that way? And men finding that, that wasn't the case. Oh, sorry, computer. And yeah, so I feel like I had the opportunity to reflect and I think potentially work on myself. Thank you. And fin finally, Ken, you've obviously had to hear some pretty painful accounts. What, how, how did you cope with, with that? What advice would you give, give to others about, about how to cope? Um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's very difficult because my advice is that prepare to be unprepared, potentially, because that's, that's very little. There's... There are some stories that uh, are, are, are very, very difficult to prepare for. And I think it is maybe links back to what I was, my recommendation to the criminal justice system and to services. Um, trying to approach uh, men's stories and survivor stories in general as humanely as possible can be a very powerful, uh, powerful tool, not only to help them, and safeguard but also to safeguard yourself because you're putting yourself in a position where i'm just interested it's a framework it's a it's a potentially a state of mind a perspective that you're trying to take which is um i'm only interested in their story and i want to learn from them and giving them a space to to tell their story and it's a very interesting phenomenon perhaps um you're protecting yourself and you're putting in the best position to to listen to these stories and if I can give a second advice, perhaps, is that do, um, if anyone is interested in doing research with men to, to do it, because it's extremely rewarding. There are many challenges to be over to, to overcome. 
But when you give a platform to groups who are silenced, voiceless, or invisible, the stories are mostly tragic, uh, very sad, but at the same time, incredibly rewarding because uh, you, you've seen the therapeutic effect that it has on people and helping others has uh, a therapeutic effect to yourself, I think, as well. So it's a double win. It sounded like you were saying um, something about having integrity, really, in your position um, mm. with, the, with the first part of your answer, um, which, you know, holding on to your own integrity and, and appreciating that that therefore has integrity in terms of impact on your participants. Um, so very interesting. Well, Thank you. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, or at least I like to think that I'm trying to uh, be authentic, perhaps. Um, this is not very this is not very scientific. I don't I don't think you're going to see this in many handbooks for quality. Maybe, maybe perhaps, but you know, be yourself and be prepared to uh, to be a nice person helps. But Ken, how did you keep yourself cheerful after hearing these painful stories, which had been held on to for decades in some cases? Yes. Um, maybe cheerful, uh, not so much. Um, but I think that what's really, really interesting here is that despite, so if just to give you percentages, uh, for example, out of an interview, 90% of it was around the, the suffering and the trauma and the pain that the men experienced. But the 10% in which they showed, they wanted to show me how they overcome this pain or how they were aware they were in the journey towards overcoming and breaking their silence was really, really touching and really inspiring in many ways. I think that the survivors, the, the, the nine, well, 10 and 11 survivors who took part in my research uh, really inspired me about what, um, and I don't mean this in a very, in in a gendered or sexist way about what it means to be a man or how being a man in accepting the suffering and accepting or acknowledging the suffering and the pain can be can be used to become a uh, potentially a better person or to to move forward and so which, yeah which is very powerful considering it sounds like feeling a bit, a bit emasculated at times was a, mm-hmm. a theme that was there uh, for you participants. so the fact that i had that 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 powerful um, sense of masculinity throughout was um, really fascinating. Now, and, and what's really interesting is that a lot of them acknowledged that they were just at the beginning of a journey to recovery. A lot of them told me very specifically about their nightmares and their the flashbacks and very PTSD-like symptoms. And uh, from a clinical perspective, we know how how it's 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 very difficult to 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 handle all of these emotions. And yet, were wanted to to show, but I'm still here. I'm still fighting, and I'm still surviving, and that's fine. Thank you very much, Ken. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was terrific. Thank you.